This is part two of the Movie Nuts podcast with uh, special guest Chris Shelton and I talking about John Wayne films by the Duke, and we'll pick it up where the last one left off. So anyway, the, the Sons of Katie Elder is is kind of a latter day uh, established John Wayne character movie, but it's just one that for some reason it, it sort of has all the elements, and I just have really always liked it, and I I can't explain why, and I know you have others. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the Rio Bravo El Dorado combo, but for some reason the Sons of Katie Elder checklists all the uh, latter day kind of John Wayne stuff for me. Well, I I don't quite love it as much too, but I do like it. It's still a very good film. Yeah, you know, I just make that like John Wayne for me has given eight or nine special performances in the movie, and almost all of them, not quite all of them, but most of them can be John Ford or Howard Fox. But, uh, but I do agree that, you know, that's, it's such a great cast. I mean, with, with um, Dean Martin, Earl Holloman, Dennis Hopper, uh, James Gregory, who I really like a lot. You like the Mentoring Candidate. Right. Uh, a great cast, and, and that's just a lot of fun. Well, I think it exemplifies something we referenced a little earlier, is uh, that version of the John Wayne famous gunfighter character that was developed in Stagecoach and The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance and The Searchers and all that, this is just one of those roles that's that's sort of typical. He's the gunfighter that we don't really know anything else about him other than that he is this gunfighter, and everyone should be the afraid of him. The celebrity reputation. Right, and everyone should be afraid of him. And and basically the, the reason to draw this ensemble cast together in this movie, which is a, a Henry Hathaway, uh, is that their mother, the aforementioned Katie Elder, has died, and four brothers played by John Wayne is the oldest, Dean Martin, and another, uh, and I know you and I both like Dean, when Dean gets to act a little bit, because he's really quite good Absolutely. for somebody who is sort of, history has painted as Jerry Lewis, the straight man, but when Dean got to play a, a role with a little juiciness to it, Dean, Dean was as good a scenery chewer as anybody around. Absolutely, and, and in retrospect, Something happened with the, the Lewis and Martin team that they really became for kids only. When I, apparently they started out adults in these famous nightclub performances that nobody recorded. But for me, I, the only reason I can sit through a Lewis and Martin film is because of Dean Martin. Well, and yeah, I mean, they, their their original claim was was a Vegas act, which I presume was very adult because, well, most successful Vegas acts, especially in that day, you know, were and it was scotch in hand and cigarette in hand and you know that kind of thing. Anyway, yes, and then if Jerry Lewis was at that time outrageous for running into the audience, pretending he was a waiter that was fumbling over things and yelling and shouting, while Dean Martin would, you know, sing songs and, and sort of have a sort of smooth repartee. But, but Dean Martin also, uh, obviously not in movies, but he's a, a very good improv comment, so he could mm-hmm. really think uh, on his feet too. And you're right, there's there's something that happened in that breakup that is that people thought at the time and. We're not dating ourselves because this is before our time too. But that Jerry Lewis is going to keep going with you know like like Paul Simon without Garfunkel. He was just going to keep going with all with his career, and it's kind of the end of Dean Martin. And people liked Dean Martin so much that he's so personable that there was sort of a, a rooting for him. You know, like, uh, even though we should be rooting for our own lives, people were rooting for Dean Martin, and uh, he was just a very likable guy. And that does come through that that when he does make a it does make a decent film and has a decent performance, even a film like Airport that there's. That's the most stereotype-written film ever. Uh, Dean Martin's good at it, and Dean Martin, you know, is good at the Katie Elder. 
Right, and and would repeat a a match with the Duke in uh, another one of our favorites, which again is the Rio Bravo El Dorado combo, which is effectively the same movie. One having Dean as the inebriated sheriff, and the other casting uh, Robert Mitchum in the same role. Right. So for right, the, one was 1959, one was 1966. The sons of Katie Elder were in between, right. but because these two films are identical, we had to sort of figure out. We thought I'd place it afterwards. Right. Uh, well, and the other two sons, as you mentioned, one is Earl Holloman, uh, and then uh, Michael Anderson Jr. is the very the very youngest who has remained sort of behind. Uh, I guess one of the things I like about it, much as you've mentioned, is as a lot of these ensemble piece John Wayne-led movies are, the cast is just so good. Uh, the brothers alone, uh, you know, Dean, who is sort of, I mean... Uh, John Wayne's the gunfighter. Dean Martin's sort of a grifter con man. I don't really recall that Earl Holman's particular vice was ever talked about, but then Bud was going to go to college. Bad guy's James Gregory, whose son is Dennis Hopper, and then he hires uh, George Kennedy, who, of course, arrives all in black <clears throat> as, as the hired yeah, gun. Go ahead. I was going to say, the Earl Holman character, he's kind of the, the guy in Star Trek with the red shirt. Right, right. And and then to die exactly, and then all the little character actors sprinkled throughout, including the longtime sheriff whose name escapes me from the Rifleman, is also oh, yeah, the sheriff the in this. The original Doctor McCoy in Star Trek. Oh wow, boy, you're reaching not not Forrest Kelly, but the one in the original pilot. Yes, exactly, and the, and the first uh, episode that aired. Right, Star Trek. So so yeah, so uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's the Rifleman and playing a character that's. Almost like that right from the character in many ways. Oh yeah, the the very sensible town sheriff. So anyway, the movie opens with the funeral, and all the brothers come, and everyone in town's all astir about whether the elder boys will come. And of course, they find out that they're both their mother and father's passing has a little bit of mystery to it, and they decide they're they're going to find out what happened and and all that good stuff. But uh, you know, again, I just I I find it a a really fun. Straight up Western. It's got a strictly B Western kind of a plot, but I'll tell you the yeah, one. The, 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 yeah, the regrets of it. What about the sons is that they all love their mom, but they really went off in different directions and sort of stopped paying attention to her, and um, and only come together for her death. And it turns out that she's lost her ranch, that she wasn't living a very good life, and there's a tremendous guilt on their fact that um, that they weren't very good sons, um, and that. There's kind of no way for them to really deal with this. They're almost fortunate to have the James Gregory character as the villain because a lot of these John Wayne characters that you said are coming are sort of built from the past. The the menace he had in some of these earlier films, he can sort of light it down just a little without losing it. But it's the same sort of character in the sense that he doesn't really know how to show love. He kind of does things in a hard headed way, and so he's almost thrilled that this thing's going to turn into a shoot 'em up kind of situation because that way he's. He's making up for not being there for his mom while she was alive. Right. Well, one of the things I found, just I, and I don't know why, the most intriguing about this film is that, of course, their mother, Kate Elder, is referred to and is revered in this small town. Everybody loved Katie. And you're constantly told things about her that she only had two dresses and she gave guitar lessons for food and all this other stuff. And no matter what, not once do you ever even see a photograph. 
Katie's actual appearance is is a complete mystery throughout the entire movie. Right. You know, I think you're right. That's very interesting, and I think that I wish more movies would do that, where the, the central character, you never actually know, actually see that character. Um, and uh, But that's really, again, with the film circles around. Well, I, I suppose you could make the argument that someone at Central Casting was trying to figure out whose mother, or what a mother would look like that would produce children that look like John Wayne, Earl Holloman, and Dean Martin. But, well, anyway. Wow. Uh, <laughs> all I know, if, um, if, I, if I was one of their kids, I hope it was Dean Martin's kid. <laughs> so, but, I, you know, and it, it has it has uh, a lot of the classic gunfight sequences, clear, defined good guys and bad guys, but just for a, a plain old Saturday morning western type, I, I've just always enjoyed it, and I, I don't know why above the other ones that one's always stood out, but I think it's honestly just always been the thing that I found it fascinating that you don't ever get to see Katie, but you hear, you know, yeah, she's a saint. And again, I, you know, sometimes films rely on their villains and stuff, and, and George Kennedy uh, keeps the character a little more, doesn't quite be quite as, um, keeps him a little more under wraps, which I sort of like. He, plays, he sort of understates the, the, the menace uh, mm-hmm. of his character. And uh, James Gregory is just one of those guys that's been in a million things on television and movies, and I just really like him. He's probably most famous as uh, Inspector Luger um, Barney on Barney Miller. Miller but <laughs> right. he's just one of my favorite actors. So just seeing, just seeing him and seeing this great cast of actors, you go, you know what, I got two hours to kill. This is a fun way to spend two hours. Well, and uh, bringing that up, one of the other interesting notes to it is at that at that point in time, um, Dennis Hopper had become kind of persona non grata. He'd been known as one of those pain in the butt method actor types, and was having a very difficult time finding work. And he somehow had befriended or become connected to John Wayne, who cast him as James Gregory's son as a favor. And uh, uh, later on, Hopper would effectively credit the Duke with keeping his career alive. Uh, right, When right. he had become, you know, he was one of those dreaded method people, but he wasn't so talented or so appealing like a Marlon Brando or uh, we, Montgomery Clift we talked about or James Dean. When people decided he was too much trouble, he couldn't get any work. Yeah, and then, yeah, he had a drug problem to go along with it. And right. Yeah, John Wayne would cast him again in the future, uh, True Grit. But that, those two characters, those two films are very similar, sort of, it's just an out-and-out coward kind of character, an unlikable character uh, in many ways, and yet says something about Dennis Hopper's um, persona that he never ultimately got stereotyped uh, that way. Uh, he's one sort of person before those cowboy characters, and he wasn't cast the coward later on. He's cast uh, with sort of eccentric qualities, mm-hmm. and then he became the maniac kook villain, Right. Um, and then occasionally given a sort of sweet role of redemption. Uh, he really has an eclectic career as opposed to someone like John Wayne or even Dean Martin, who we both admire so much, but we don't think of them playing a wide range of, of characters. And Dennis Hopper gets your attention whether he's only in one scene or, or whether he's the, the, the mainstay. Exactly. Well, and, and, and you hit on it. I think the, the Sons of Katie Elder fits very comfortably in the groove of when John Wayne had become the John Wayne character. Uh, and by that, I, I mean he was even able a little bit to lighten up because that yeah, sense right. of menace that we had established, that had been established for him, particularly in The Searchers, um, 
Red River, Richard Manshot, Liberty Valley, Red right. River, Stagecoach, all those characters are necessary so that when the John Wayne character appears, you instantly reflect on those characters, and that way you're right. He doesn't quite have to, he doesn't have to be openly threatening you. You go, oh, wow, this is the guy from the past, and the past is very similar to John Wayne, the actor. Right. Can, he could become Ethan Edwards if you just mess with him long enough. Right, right. So well, uh, coming from that, and you and you mentioned the chronology, the the two movies that that bracket this one uh, are again two great fun ones to watch, which are uh, Rio Bravo and El Dorado, and again they're uh, shall we say strikingly similar. I would say they're the exact. I mean, it's hard to admit they're they're it's almost strikingly similar even it's the exact same film seven years later the John Char- John Mean character though is just um, you can tell he's a little bit older in the, in the relationship with the woman character in the film yeah Angie but, Dickinson but other than that it is the same film and so really the the, the, the key when you watch it I mean, Real Bravo is just a little more artsy in the beginning because it's, it's about ten minutes in before there's a, a word of dialogue sort of famous opening that's all done through music and, and sounds um, but, but other than that we end up going back and forth over the casting and one thing I think is striking is that you and I are doing this you know actually you know, it's kind of fun when you watch Cisco and Eber. it's really fun when they disagree and so I would actually be totally okay when you and I disagree on something maybe that'll be funner <laughs> but one of the things that we agree upon as much as we love Dean Martin is that his character is replaced by Robert Mitchum and Robert Mitchum all of it steals the show Oh yeah, in El Dorado right well the, to, to give the 3x5 card version essentially both movies center around the idea of a, a drunken sheriff who has no, no respect from the town ends up holding a really, really bad guy. And his gunfighter friend, played by John Wayne, has come to town and helps him resurrect the respect and, and keep this guy. Makes me laugh when you, you say I'm, I'm being too generous. You're probably right, because not not only is it John Wayne twice, not only is it basically the same plot, but the twist uh, change between the two is that in one, the third wheel is Ricky Nelson as Colorado, not to be confused with James Caan as Mississippi. Right, <laughs> Mississippi, who only uses a knife, not a gun, though they give him a shock at the comical effect because he doesn't know how to use one. Right. Um, maybe the humor works a little bit better in El Dorado, too, because they get a lot of humor out of James Caan and Robert Mitchum that I don't remember them getting out of Ricky Martin and Dean Martin as much. No, and um, I mean, Ricky being Ricky, Ricky was never the most talented actor. And, and James... No, he's, he's James, basically competent. He doesn't, he doesn't ruin the film in any way, which is... No, he's very nondescript. But James Caan, obviously, is a much stronger personality. And for for our, our both of our appreciations of Dean Martin, he, he can't compare to Robert Mitchum's range and capabilities. I've always thought Robert Mitchum is another guy that if we... Uh, we move on from our, our uh, Montgomery Clift Promise podcast. Robert Mitchum is another guy that's in so many great movies. Yes, and, and, and the, the character they're playing is this is the, the, the town drunk sheriff, and um, and, and the, the thing is that Dean Martin is, is better than competent. You know, we say Ricky Nelson is really competent. Dean Martin right. is better than that. But, but Robert Mitchum is really playing a character, uh, and his, his town drunk does look like, you know, um, uh, like this guy's, 
been out of it for quite a while, and uh, he, he, he portrays being smelly in a way that Dean Martin doesn't quite project, but all the scenes of everybody bringing him a bar of soap right. uh, when he tries to take a bath. Uh, and uh, the other thing that, that Robert Mitchell is just able to get a little bit better than Dean Martin is the moment where he finally sobers up, and, and he really doesn't have his gun, but he's trying to get a drink in again. He, he can't stop the alcoholism, and the group... The bad guys played by Todd Aikens, the original, and Ed Asner, the second right. one, has brought in these, this gunslinger and his pals, and they start making fun of the Robert Mitchum character and the Dean Martin character. And Robert Mitchum plays that with such embarrassment that he doesn't have his gun, he's not on his best game, and, and that he finally sees for himself what everybody else sees him. You're, you're nothing but a drunk. You're a joke. Um, and, um, uh, again, Dean Martin plays it well, but Robert Mitchum plays superb. Right. And, and this, this also relates back uh, to a to a theme we touched on earlier but I, I think is worthy of note when you're talking about the John Wayne legacy overall and and that is that a great deal of his movies do play like ensemble films just because the cast is so good and when you start right. rattling off names of of actors who are in some of these movies that could obviously carry films by themselves but evidently the idea of working with the duke was so appealing that robert mitchum and uh, rod taylor and kirk douglas and all of these people are are in movies with john wayne in this sort of i guess i want to call it comfortable john wayne period where he's playing that character you described so well before where the menace of the prior movies is there but he's he's got this comfortable version of the known gunfighter celebrity guy who comes to save the day and everyone around him gravitates to him but you know during the 50s and 60s the actors and actresses that would come to play in these movies with him is remarkable uh these are people that quite yeah. obviously can carry films by themselves without any trouble but apparently, and by the by, the list of them, it had to be pretty cool to get to be in a western with the Duke. Yeah, I'm sure. And just uh, for that reason, the ensemble. It's so interesting to contrast the various people. Is that uh, who do you like more in each role? I guess for the original, I, I maybe like Claude Akins a little bit more than Ed Asner. I just like Claude Akins. I always really like Claude Akins as an actor, and he had the initial scene where he throws the point in the spittoon for Dean Martin to humiliate himself, pull it out, and the way Claudia can laugh, uh, just small things, um, I probably give him the nudge. Uh, Walter Brennan is a dead push with Arthur Hedman. They're, they're the eccentric, death, eccentric elderly deputy. Right. Uh, you don't quite know what they would do, but they're there for a lot of comic effect. But Walter Brennan's won three Academy Awards, and Arthur Hedman is an excellent actor, so I would call that one a push. And then I do think that one more I give real bravo over El Dorado is the female character, because I think the Ange Dickinson character has more of a sexual vibe with the John Wayne your earlier film, while there's more of a mature, matureness and not really a sexual vibe uh, in the El Dorado remake. And Andy Dickinson is very good in that role. She's uh, the prostitute um, uh, saloon girl who uh, is disordered to sort of deciding whether she's just going to totally given the prostitution, or is she going to go off the John Wayne character? And the John Wayne character, one of the things about him is most of his relationships, including his second wife in real life, were prostitutes. Uh, that was, you know, that's what his character was. He usually went from town to town and uh, hung out in saloons, so all he really knew were bar girls. 
Well, and and yeah, she's she's again a reflection, uh, and the the man who shot Liberty Valance against references and a few others that the John Wayne archetype character doesn't deal with women well. No, he doesn't. And so they're at least openly blatant about it because that's the age Dickens is basically telling him, you know, you've got to be romantic. You gotta, you can't have me assuming anything, uh, sort of blasting at him. And as I said, I, 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 always, I never think of age Dickinson as, as, as more than too much, a very pretty sexy girls, much better than a lightweight actress. But this is not exactly a role of grouches, but, but she plays it very well. Now, this is a little off topic, but related. Uh, ironically, if you go back through um, John Wayne's war movies, he has a much better track record of dealing with women as a military man. I haven't really thought of that. Uh, if, if you watch it um, in harm's way, uh, he has the relationship with uh, Patricia Neal throughout. Uh, the military John Wayne gets along with women. The Western John Wayne always has these very simplistic and ineffectual relationships. Yeah, I agree. I would also say that, um, I, you know, I guess it's Western, you know, um, whatchamacallit, uh, um, uh, not not Catch, real grande, but but right. the, the female that you associate with John Wayne is maybe having the best relationship actor to actress in various roles. Marina Hara, right? And still, Maria Hara is, is sometimes the, the sidekick in some of these westerns, rather than having a real character. And her most famous role with John Wayne was not a western; it was Quiet Man with the Quiet Man, John sure. Ford winning another Academy Award. Well, so and- you're right. The western John Wayne just doesn't get it with women. He, he likes women. He respects women. I mean, he's not a chauvinist. He's a chivalrous guy. Maybe a chauvinist, but not, not a blatant one. He's a chivalrous guy. He just doesn't understand. He, the guy protects the woman, and the woman stays at home, cooks, and makes babies, and keeps the place looking nice. And I don't even think she thinks there's anything wrong with that, but, but sometimes the women do. Well, it's, it's funny because Maureen O'Hara, I think, stars in, in the movie with him that, intentionally or otherwise kind of parodies that, which is McClintock with an exclamation point, where right. their relationship and the, the tempestuous nature of it is at the heart of all of it. But it sort of it sort of clowns on the whole idea that the John Wayne character is terrible with women. And Maureen O'Hara is, is the character that finally says to him, you're terrible with women. Right. Well, so I, I'm glad you brought up McClintock because we're also um, thinking of uh, North... Um North of Alaska, is that the thing about something like El Dorado, even, even the other John Wayne films that are really good, is there is a lot of humor in El Dorado. It, it, there's a lot, of, a lot of moments that you laugh. It's not a comedy, but when there were out and out John Wayne Westerns that are supposed to be funny, they are dead air to me. They're so unfunny. Um, I do John Wayne Westerns that are comedies don't work, but John Wayne Westerns that are drama have a lot of sincere laughs, in my opinion. Well, I, I think it goes back to the idea that the, John Wayne had reached a point in the mind of the audience where when it was time to get serious, there was little or no question he was the baddest guy around. And once that was established, he could play lighter and not ruin it because you knew when, when, you know, when the rubber met the road, he was still going to be the baddest guy in town, and that allowed the movies to be a little less serious because the serious moments still play when it's John Wayne. And if John Wayne can play it a little lighter, 
then you know that it can't be that serious at that moment because he carries that with him. Right. Well, and, um, um, you know, there was a tumor on the set. We talked about it before, but one of the scenes in uh, um, the original Rear Bravo uh, had the John Wayne character kissing the Walter Brennan character on the forehead. And as a show, Howard Hawks had him do the scene like 50 times. We had kissed Walter Brennan 50 times. So there's humor on the set, and, and clearly Howard Hawks believed, I think even more than John Ford, uh, you know, a, a little a little bit of humor here and there, it, it really plays out um, well. Well, Ford, Ford's version of humor was so thick with irony that it, yes, it yes, isn't humor right. in, in the... It, it, it gets the single sort of ha, <laughs> then it gets real laughs. Like, uh, as we were talking about the searchers and and Wayne's line that referenced was referenced by by Buddy Holly the ironic humor of Wayne saying that'll be the day is about as humorous as that movie gets yeah well it also well it was it, it's it's idea of humor I mean John Ford really does into humor well it's the scene where he, he kicks the the Indian woman the native woman yeah, married Luke. to the He's not supposed to be funny. I don't right. know how funny that is. And then a man shot Liberty Valance. The, the humor, if it's supposed to be really funny, is when the John Wayne character and Liberty Valance character are confronting each other, about to kill each other. Um, there's a, there's a, as you said, a very dry sort of humor mixed into the, the, the menace of that. That's a menacing thing. But clearly it's meant to have some, some, some humor about these idiots who, who kill each other over someone knocking over a real person's stake. Right, right. It, it, it's it, it's a very it's a very dark humor at best. Well, at least Howard Hawks, that humor is uh, better fitted to you know um, the situation, and Howard knows kind of knows when to pull back and let it be serious. Right, right. Well, as we came through this period uh, with the established version of John Wayne, we then hit, I think, which which is one that, as I recall, being. One of, one of your favorites is maybe, I guess, if you want to call it, oh, I don't want to say a transitional role, but a, a different John Wayne role uh, when a, a young, very cute Kim Darby enlists him to help her find some killers. Right, in True Grit, and uh, John Wayne's uh, Academy Award winning performance, the first character that he's honestly playing is an old man's house, so you got to acknowledge the pot belly and, and his age and such like that. Now, one thing, because we're not as old as probably everybody listening to this thinks we are, because we're referencing the things like we just saw him yesterday, um, and that we were there in the theater while they played live, that, that we I wouldn't have known is that his prior film was The Green Beret, and the reviews were savage, they were so horrible, and there were many, there's much talk that, you know what, this might be the end of John Wayne's making movies, and he shouldn't be making movies anymore, they're so bad, they followed that up with True Grit, which uh, not only was a positive success, but a tremendous critical res- uh, reception, and then an Academy Award. Right, and, you know, as, as the Academy has its tendency to do, I think it was looked on, uh, much as Sean Connery's Best Supporting Actor for The Untouchables, as kind of a career appreciation award, award disguised as a, a single Oscar. I would, I would call that, I would do a mixed mixed one on that one because they finally got around giving somebody like Paul Newman uh, uh, an Academy Award right. for a, a film I didn't like. The Verdict. Uh, and at least, at least the John Wayne film that 
that he received it is a good film. And at least it is a character. He is playing someone different than these other characters. I agree that there's there's definitely a build-up that has something to do with why he won. But I also think it wasn't a clunker Academy Award like some we've seen where we go, oh, you know what, they're just giving him for all the past films. There's an every aspect to that, but he does play a, a character. Well, yeah, and, and a, a bit of a more... Oh, irreverent, ribald version. I think, as you allude to, um, it's an aged version of the John Wayne stereotype, and a little more, like you say, pot-bellied and vulnerable. But that aspect of it is played a little bit more for humor to deflect the fact that he may not—he he may no longer be the scariest man on earth. Right, right. That, that, in fact, what, why he still got that same reputation, but he's finally got to a certain point, like a ball player, where now the people are starting to think, you know what, this guy's kind of lost a little bit. He's lost his fastball. He's he really should have hung it up a little bit. Which is kind of funny because that's what I apparently people are saying about John Wayne the actor. Um, but right. just like the Duke, uh, don't underestimate this guy. Don't underestimate his Western character, and don't underestimate the actor. Exactly. Now, have you seen the remake, the Coen Brothers True Grit? I haven't, and you're probably telling me I know you have. I just can't bring myself to see the remake, but I'm, the reviews were fantastic. I love Jeff Bridges, and you're going to say why I should watch it. It's it's really it's really well done, and it doesn't take very long to stop thinking about the John Wayne version. I mean, I like I like the John Wayne version just fine, no no issues at all. But they are they are so very careful to not play on it and bridges is great and the story is is effectively the same but it's it's a it's a much more moody movie and true grits a little bit the the john wayne version is sort of a spirited you know highbrow western type and and rooster cogburn is a very larger than life you know, ultra John Wayne and the Rooster Cogburn that Jeff Bridges plays is is a bit more nuanced, which is not to take that away from John Wayne. the The John Wayne version plays for the for the seventies comeback role that it is, but for this this now post Fargo, post No Country for Old Men, Cone Brothers world, it right, it right. plays well. Well, you've also said to me that uh, that you believe the Jeff Bridges character might actually die in the film, while the John Wayne, even going after the, the three uh, villains at the end, one of them being Robert Duvall, you, right. you, you really think, you know, you three sons of bitches, John Wayne's going to come out and kill all three of you. Right. Uh, but, but you say, with Jeff Bridges, you're not quite that sure he's going to survive it. He, his, his flaws seem far more detrimental uh, I don't know how many flaws you can give John Wayne to make him not feel threatening, uh, which is sort of a segue to the last movie I know we want to talk about. But it's tough to make John Wayne vulnerable. Uh, and Jeff Bridges, Jeff Bridges spends about a third of the movie making you wonder whether or not if his horse takes a sharp turn, he's going to slide right off the back of it. Right. Well, what did you think? Of, you know, one thing I read that again, I haven't seen the film, so I can't have an opinion. But I was so disappointed to, to hear about the great reviews about the girl that played Maddie in the remake, and that she was so much better than Kim Darby. Because I thought Kim Darby was terrific in the original True Crit, so I was thrilled having her 
put down in order to build somebody else up. What did you think of the difference between the two Addy characters? The young girl whose father was killed, and right. she's gonna, she wants honorary son of a bitch to be, to, as a bounty hunter, uh, and, 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 and share, and, and hunt the guy down and kill her father. Right, what did you well, think of the two actresses? They both used the phrase, which is the title, I'm told you have true grit. Uh, I, I, she's, I, I wouldn't be so critical of Kim Darby because, again, uh, as you're talking about, in, in the context of the 70s True Grit version, she she's cute as a button, and she's supposed to be, and she's cast that way, and she has that sort of wide, doe-eyed look throughout it. But so when those moments come that she's got to be tough, that very angelic face sort of plays it. Um, and, and I also think that I, I can tell me where the other actress is different. I thought she played very well. I thought she she didn't overact. That in fact she's so hurt that she wants to cry in private, but not in front of people. She feels like she's, she's got to be really hard headed. But I think the vulnerability is still there. Um, as I said, I, I wish I, I wish they didn't need to put her down and build somebody else up. Right. And and in the humor of True Grit, I got the funniest scene is is with Strother Martin when she negotiates a horse down <laughs> to the point that Strother Martin. Is willing to give her money in the horse right. to get rid of her. Right. In in this one, be, I think here here's what I would say the difference is. Yeah. Because John Wayne is Rooster Cogburn, Kim Darby doesn't have to worry, and, and there's no use in Kim Darby worrying whether or not John Wayne is up to the task. I mean, she could, but it wouldn't fly. Right. And because Jeff Bridges is so questionable the girl has a much bigger role in sort of glancing over at him throughout the movie and saying, are you sure you're really up to this? And so the role just has wow. greater depth because of who you're playing off of. But no, right, I... Right, right. You know, that's yeah. probably a lot of truth to that. I, yeah. I mean, but no, I, I, I think if you watch it, you'll enjoy it because I think you will very quickly dissociate it with the John Wayne version uh, because of the way it's presented. But, yeah, again, I, I wouldn't discredit the Kim Darby version, but she hired John Wayne, so we all kind of know John Wayne's going to find a way, and the and the girl in the new one hires this broken version of Rooster Cogburn, and there's a lot of question whether or not she's thrown her money away. And I just don't think, however, right. however many ways you try to twist that, as long as you pay John Wayne, pretty tough to get around the idea that he's going to make it work. And in the other one, you know, one thing, you can do it. Go ahead. Yeah, in the other I think one, the one that might be different. That you can tell me whether I'm wrong or right because I haven't seen one of the films, so I can't judge it. Is perhaps did Jeff Bridges maybe play an alcoholic while John Wayne played a drunk? And maybe there's a difference there because John Wayne's drunk. Is sort of humorous in a certain way that an alcohol is not humorous. Is that possibly true or not true? Well, yeah. I, I mean, the, I, I think it, it just goes back again to the fact that you can't you can't downgrade John Wayne's capabilities too terribly much, no matter what you make him. You make him a drunk, you make him a whatever. He's still, at the end of the day, when pistols are drawn and horses are charging... He's going to be John Wayne. And, right. and and Jeff Bridges does not present that. There There is an expanded scene in the new one that involves a courtroom where Jeff Bridges' methods are very properly questioned. And they appear that his methods are very questionable 
Oh, as a shortcut. And and the it would be hard to imagine Wayne taking the same cross examination and the whole jury just not like standing up and going, Well, that's John Wayne. If he said he had to shoot him, of course he had to shoot him. Right, right. Right. And so that that that's that's the that's the difference. I'll say this too. Well get comfortable because it's like I was gonna say about the original True Grit is especially because I was so fond of the Kim Darby performance is that it's really a three people hanging out together and the third wheel is Glenn Campbell and if anybody's the weak right. link of that movie it's Glenn Campbell it's just fortunate he's not bad he doesn't ruin the film but he's only at best adequate I did see Glenn Campbell live in, in New Orleans once and, uh, and he, when he played his song from True Grit he said without doubt being in a movie with the Duke was the number one career highlight bar none oh there, there's no question <laughs> By the way, as a guitar By the way, as a guitar player, if you ever want to be amazed at how talented Glenn Campbell actually was, look at some stuff on YouTube where he plays with yeah, like Chet no. Atkins and other people. Holy crap! No, I mean he was—he was, he was uh, a lot of number one recordings. He was—he was in the Birds, not the musicians. Right, <laughs> right. There's the names in it, but yeah, he's the musician. He was on Tequila, nineteen thirty-eight, to number one. Glenn Campbell is the, the the great session musician uh, who, who was a whose partner in a lot of these sessions was the bass player Charlie Daniels. Um, yeah, right. for some reason, uh, the, that's part of Glenn Campbell's legacy that people don't know about. What a terrific musician. This guy could play guitar, uh, and, and, and good enough that he was the West Coast Jimmy Page. Well, if you went to London, you're Jimmy Page your session player, and if you went to Los Angeles, it's going to be Glenn Campbell. Yep. Okay, what's, what's the sound of 111 movie notes telling us to get back to John Wayne? Oh, yeah, there yeah. it was. <laughs> Um, well, moving from True Grit, which which is definitely a necessary part of the discussion of, of the John Wayne Western career, uh, we come to the actual swan song, which has so many interesting levels and connections back to the past, which is the shootest, uh, Wayne's last film. Right. I love, absolutely love. Even though I agree that some of his masterpieces, if you were doing the Roger Ebert, four-star. His masterpieces are all four-stars. This is definitely a three-star because it's a flawed, um, fascinating film. It, it's, it's fascinating, especially because of, uh, of you know, the life imitates art element. Uh, to, to summarize it, a, an age, stop if this, if this sounds familiar. An aging gunfighter comes to a small town and settles in at a boarding house uh, basically, to die. And yes, he's been told he has cancer. Doesn't believe it. Goes into this town, meets the town doctor played by Jimmy Stewart, and and is told, "Nope." Um, I mean, in the most brutal terms possible. If I ever get cancer, I hope a doctor anyone but Jimmy Stewart. Um, right? But, who gives but, him the whole uh, "You'll scream" speech? Yes. Yeah, you're good. By the time you get to the end, you're going to be screaming and wish you were dead, and you're going to you're going to wither away, and you're not going to be able to move, and uh, just a, a brutal, uh, sort of frightening scene. Because this scene, John Wayne is, fr- is frightened, uh, um, and, and that's one thing I would scout to shoot is that that it's the final John Wayne film is he's 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 frightened throughout the film. It's easy for him to think, you know what, I can go up against anybody, but his character realizes I can't go up against cancer and win. Which, of course, is was true about Wayne in real life. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I, I think one of the reasons why, unwittingly or otherwise, that this, that this film 
works and seems so appropriate is of all the themes we've talked about over what's now like an hour and a half so we'll have to cut this into maybe two segments but anyway is this movie somehow manages as his unintended swan song because um, he was in discussions for other movies and was not aware how bad his cancer actually was at the time he made this but nonetheless it somehow unintentionally or or karma being as it was puts a cap on his career in a remarkable number of ways yes it's 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 it's, i always assumed he knew he had cancer and was dying as he was making the film but apparently he did and if that's the case this should have been his academy award he was Uh, very ill but it but there was not my understanding is is that he did not look at this as his almost certainly last film. Yes, but well, we should hear. Of course, we know that he that's his last film. Correct. But he looks bad. He does not look. He, he looks bad shape. You, you you really sort of have to look at that character and think. I don't know if he could do another western. I don't know what he could, what he could do because his character, you know, doesn't doesn't give him a lot to do but be the tough guy out of these things. And, and he's not. He, he's finally his numbers up. Well, and interestingly, I I don't know how this was chosen, but Don Siegel, who made some of the great action movies ever, including the original Dirty Harry and the very first Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, was the director of this. And apparently they, they, they clashed a bit about how to present it because, uh, Wayne wanted it more understated and Siegel's raison d'etre as it were was to be more action oriented um but the movie has an interesting blend again of of medium action throughout most of it but again the wayne character continues to give off an exceptional sense of menace yes and but this is definitely a film where the don siegel's mistake was not just going with the strength of the film the strength of the film is the john wayne character Knowing, you know, in his own mind, he basically lived. The Jimmy Stewart character tells him basically, "Hey, you're gonna, you better commit suicide, or, or you're not gonna like die." So John Wayne sort of gets into his head. It's gonna be his final eight days. He's gonna read a newspaper for the time for the for the for that. All that's kind of interesting, actually. But unfortunately, then John Siegel decided to have a shoot 'em up at the end. So the John Wayne character draws three different people with different agendas. Including um, Richard Boone to to kill him, and unfortunately that plot device. Why would these three guys show up at the same time, sit in different sections, just to have John Wayne go out more time? They really would have been better off just one villain uh, instead of three. Well, and and yes, you're right. The the ending uh, confrontation is is contrived, and and plus, I, I don't know if they were unable to get any higher list people who would be willing to be part of the end of John Wayne, but effectively he is surrounded by television villains at the end. Richard, yes. Richard Boone, uh, Hugh O'Brien, uh, on the third... And, and Richard Boone was, was a very good villain in The Searchers, not so great remake, but in Big Jake he was the villain, and a very good villain, I thought. Yeah, I mean, Richard, Richard Boone has that sense, but his greatest fame being, being Paladin, on TV, but it's it's funny, given that the cast again, as usual, surrounding the Duke is terrific. Uh, his landlady is played by the aged but still radiant Lauren Bacall. Uh, her yeah, son is Ron Howard, right? And then John. Did Car- you see Lauren Bacall? 
The U.S. Supreme Court probably have a lot of great roles post-1970, and this is one of them. Well, it makes you wonder a little bit, because at that point... Lauren Bacall roles were very few and far between. I, th- I think she's in Murder in the Orient Express and a couple other things. What, other than her, obviously, her, her friendship with Wayne would call for her to, to play the central role and, and play it magnificently uh, because her love-hate relationship with John Books, the, uh, the character of John Wayne, really makes the, the movie. She becomes... She becomes the, the conflict of his life. Why is he right. why is he a gunfighter? Why is he only known as this bad person? And she constantly confronts him with it. And that he's ruining her business because they realize there's this killer there and she's just barely making it. And here she's gotta baby him. Um, he can't even stand up in a bath, you know, get a, in a, the bathtub. He can't get himself out of the bathtub. And this guy, you know, is, is killing her business. He lied to her about who he was. Right. Um, so she's pretty angry with him, but there's the compassionate edge in her that that she has to take care of him. Well, and, and it's a it's a that's another one of those that's a tough role, and and a Lauren Bacall can pull it off because she is angry but never whiny, and she's compassionate with without being melodramatic, and it all comes to a head on as you referenced that eighth day. Where he sets it up, where where he tells the the sheriff played by Harry Morgan to let Richard Boone out, and the word gets out for Hugh O'Brien. He knows he is leaving to die, and their 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 goodbye conversation is very short and to the point, but it works. Yeah, no, it, it really it's, it's a so transcending film because because we know what happened, and it's hard to believe that it's not John Wayne. The, the the person saying goodbye to Lauren Bacall, the person in real life, and I guess it wasn't. You know, they were acting, but it doesn't feel like acting. It feels like these are two people, and we're we're keying in on their conversation. Right, right, and and the fact that he was able to get someone of, of her caliber to be sort of the she's she's pretty much the moral barometer of the movie, and when he bids her goodbye. There is there is a higher level sense of recognition of it, and she acknowledges it, and it's it's a very simple scene, but it shows you what a couple of very capable actors can do with a very very simple scene and very very simple dialogue, but the tone and the expression and the inflection. But yeah, I mean, in retrospect, Lauren Bacall said goodbye to John Wayne for all of us. Yeah, it really was, and and her character has more reasons to be her character has more reasons to be upset with the John Wayne character because she has a son, Gillen, played by Ron Howard, and the Ron Howard character increasingly wants to be like John Wayne character and becomes attracted to guns, which her mom is, her mom, the mom is very opposed to. And the other interesting thing about the John Wayne character in that movie is that's for the first time it's, it's really essentially ultimately an anti-gun film that John Wayne character for the first time starts questioning. Is it really right to, to for this young guy to grow up with guns? But do I want him to be like me? And uh, when he finally has death scene shot by a bartender in the back, um, not the three guys killed three guys. <laughs> bartender right. gets him. The the, the the guns laying next to John Wayne. He can't speak. He's just about to die. The Ron Howard character comes, steps over, picks up the gun, and it, 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 he's going to be like 
like another gunfighter, or, or what's he going to do? He throws the wrong our character, throws the gun away. John Wayne nods to him, did the right thing, and then dies. Right, right. Uh, and when when you when you add in the the very brief scene where uh, Joanna Pettit, the the former again prostitute comes to visit him that he once the character once loved and it turns out she's really only in it for his money and whatever I, it's it's just very interesting yeah, everyone wants the everyone value others will come out of the woodwork knowing the song Wayne character is going to die and want to take advantage of that right and sherry north is, is terrific in a, in a brief scene as a, a prostitute he's still like a prostitute and now john wayne ultimately in his head is his true love and, and it turns out she didn't have love that she was just uh, it used them. Maybe she loved him. Who knows? At one time, but she didn't now. Now she wants, use, wants him to marry her so that she can use his name and profit from it. And then there's another great one scene by John Kerry, who was the stagecoach, man shot Liberty Bound, fantastic right. both those roles. He is fantastic, as Roger Ebert says. The role he was born to play, a mortician, uh, and he's the mortician who walks in on John Wayne getting a haircut and um, and tries to bargain for his body so that he could show it to people after he was dead and then just throw the John Wayne character up, John Wayne's character um, in, a, in a box. Um, right. The promise is almost in the, it, it plays, it's so sleekly funny. Uh, even promises, you know, he'll pay for a couple people as mourners, a couple people to care. Right, <laughs> like, right. He's like, like, like pulling teeth getting that money out of John Charity, but they, you know, that's my bargaining dip. Right. Well, and, and I think all of those things add up to and and looking at it too, the shoes is actually a book. So this this screenplay was not written for the idea of it being one of Wayne's swan songs. There's actually a book not related that the script was based on. So it's amazing how perfectly this film connects the iconic gunfighter role, the issues with women, the issues with authority. The, the hard-headedness, all of these things that we've talked about from Stagecoach and the 60 movies before that, through all of these things in this comfortable John Wayne role, it's, a, it's remarkable how many notes of that symphony this movie touches on and closes. Right. And, and, I, and I think... It's just that, that what people just didn't know that that was going to be John Wayne's last film. And I think if people absolutely had known that, uh, the, the critical reception at the time would have been different. It, instead, it was looked at as a, a fine but flawed Western, and it's really just him dying. And then you know it's his last film that you say, this was an incredible performance. And it brings up Lauren Bacall, wow, you know, what a, what a great performance. And then these character actors are, are finding their role. Scabby Crothers, you know, is a, um, has a, a small part, but he's a, you know, very affable mm-hmm. um, in the movie. No, it's 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 an it's an incredibly fitting end to the to the life and times on screen of a movie star. And so if you're remotely uh, interested in the movies that we've talked through, save that one because it really should be watched last. Post yeah. these others because I think it's it's far it's far richer because you're right. On, on the surface, it's a fairly tepid story. I mean, if that movie isn't made by John Wayne, it's a yeah, it's, the, it's it's the, a two star yawn. It's the acting and the care and the it's really the acting ensemble and the acting of John Wayne, Lauren Bacall that elevates this to a much higher level. Which you and I sort of you know sort of brought around. What kind of John Wayne Western 
could somebody like doesn't like westerns, and I and I think this is possibly one of them. Other than you might not like five, last five seven minutes of a shoot 'em out, but but right. um, but you might like after the shoot 'em out when John Wayne faces his final goodbye. Right. It's it's certainly not as as diverse from the western genre as the man who shot Liberty Valance, but it too right. is a very human movie. He's so. He's so remarkably vulnerable in in this film in ways that again mirrored mirrored real life. But uh, it it really is interesting because ultimately he's still John Wayne, and you still have the feeling that he's going to face down these three people, and he's going he's going to succeed because he's John Wayne, and that's what makes it play so well that he kills these three gunfighters and and the flippin' bartender shoots him in the back. Right. And I think one of the things that ultimately is just a small mistake, but I realized that that, that final, that the plot device is, uh, is an homage. They actually start the movie showing his various film roles that he's played, and it's supposed to be the John Wayne character, which show that right. the character as it's grown, as it's moved along the plot, and the plot is stagecoached has John Wayne going to face these three men and gun them down. And I think that was an homage to have him do it one more time. And I just think it was a mistake, but but I could tell that's where it, obviously the stage coach were trying to show that that even though John Wayne was sixtieth film, they're sort of saying that was sort of the beginning of his fame, which it was, and that that's the character that you start with is the John Wayne character. The Ringo Kid stagecoach is is the, the beginning of it, uh, the beginning of his fame career of a, as a gunslinger and the shootist is how he's going out. Right. Well, and it's it's easy for to, to forget, particularly by the way the films are directed, that that during this this period we were talking about the uh, the Rio Bravo Sons of Katie Elder period. This is a man in his mid to late fifties, uh, frequently right, playing right. characters that were presented to be mid thirty ish. And really, the first the first time his age was part of the mix was in True Grit, and then in the Shootist. Right. I, I, I've often wondered, and I've not read anything that talked about it. His decision to grow the mustache uh, for the Shootist. Yeah, I never thought about that. Your character ever had the mustache? But he has a mustache. He has that. Any reason is. And is that a is that a uh, something to differentiate is that something to show his age because it's a trifle salt and peppery. I, I don't know, but it, I always thought that was an interesting detail that for someone who spent his entire career outside of the uh, unfortunate time he played Genghis Khan, basically being clean shaven, he he grows the the thick mustache for this movie for some reason in particular. Yeah, they never thought about it, but you're right. I mean, there, there. I wonder if there's something, you know, a splotch on his upper lip or something. They're covering. I mean, I really have no idea. I've never thought about it. But you're right. He's generally a clean-shaven person. He does have a, a mustache. And there, was it a, a gimmick or was there a reason? I, I've never read about it or thought about it nor, until nor. right now. I'll have to look it up now and see if I can figure it out. <laughs> but I never thought about well, it. Well, if you do, let me know. Well, Chris, I, I think we have we have done a, a, a great travel log here about one of our our mutual favorites, uh, the Duke himself. So uh, we are going to have to do some looking and decide what Montgomery Clift we're going to look at, so we can do another one of these soon. But uh, any any closing thoughts on the career of of the icon, the Duke John Wayne? 
just that uh, I would disagree with people who don't watch his movies and think he's a, a one-note actor. I love Clint Eastwood, but I think Clint Eastwood very much plays a one-note character when he plays his Western characters. John Wayne's characters are far more complex. I think he plays them with far more range. His characters sometimes fall apart. They have a, a, a maniac edge to their rage and anger, and, and that he's, he's an excellent actor, especially in about eight or nine movies, and more than confident of a good actor in about 100 others. That sounds like the great closing statement to me. Hey, thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. And we will set this up again. And for those you. of you listening on the podcast, again, we are available now on iTunes, like we're somebody. So any thoughts you can put on the Facebook Movie Nuts page, Chris and I will be back because this was way, way, way too much fun. And thanks to all, Bye. and to all, a good night. Bye.